Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Teresa Brown, is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Shift. She also published Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. Rightly proud to be a nurse, Teresa Brown offers a clarion call for common sense and compassion in healthcare. Here to tell her story is Teresa Brown. Teresa, I'm delighted to welcome you to this call. I'm so pleased that we finally managed to connect. We've been trying to do this for a little while, so thank you for your patience. I want to start by asking you about your experience in healthcare, and particularly how you got into healthcare. Shall we start there? How and why did you become a nurse? Thanks for reaching out to me from Australia. It's wonderful to make connections between our two countries' health systems. So I always say the why I became a nurse is a million-dollar question because people act like I'd have to give them a million dollars to make the same decision that I made, which is I have a PhD in English. I had been teaching English in college for three years. And my dad, he's retired now, but he was a professor. And when I was a kid, and then as I got older, I just thought his job seemed so wonderful. You know, the the molding of young minds and, and living with books and ideas and And I thought, that's what I want to do. And so I got my degree um, and then started doing that. And I found out that my dad's dream job, while a perfectly fine job, was not my dream job. (laughs) So then after spending six years writing a dissertation, I had to decide, well, now who do I want to be when I grow up? And in the middle of that process became a mom. Uh, first had our son, and then I got pregnant with twins. And when the girls were a year and a half old, we had a friend visit who's a nurse, came to help out. And I was talking to her about all this, and I had midwives for the twins. And I said, you know, I just thought the midwives had the coolest job in the world. And she looked at me and she said, Teresa, you could do that job. And it had never crossed my mind Ever. You know, I just thought, I've, I'm, I'm in the humanities, I have a doctorate, I'm an intellectual. <laughs> I, I, that's not a bridge I can cross. But it turns out that it was. And in fact, that I, I could become a nurse. So I learned about, in the United States at least, we have what are called accelerated nursing programs where you can have a degree in something else go back to school, get the science classes you need, and then you get the nursing classes in usually a year and a half. And literally a month later, I was taking chemistry uh, because now I had to go back to school and do all these science classes. And I, I never looked back. I never regretted it. It was absolutely the right thing for me. And, and, Of course, also I get asked, well, why didn't you become a doctor? Which I think people don't understand that nurses really hate being asked why we didn't become doctors, as if that's the ideal job and being a nurse is always second best. But I I love that that position. You're really what I call that in-between space. You're there with the patient a lot, but you're helping the patient 
coordinate with the whole healthcare system. It's a very special, rich role that doesn't always get the respect that it deserves, but that doesn't mean it is unworthy of that respect. And it's, it's wonderful. I love the way you describe that. You describe that with a lot of passion. I can see it in your eyes. What is it about nursing that made it, makes it so special? Partly that it's so hands-on and, and, and doctors can definitely be hands-on. I'm not saying they are not, but contrary to what people see on television shows, if it's two in the afternoon or two in the morning and a patient suddenly is in a ton of pain or they're not breathing well or they're vomiting profusely or they're bleeding, it's going to be a nurse who comes into the room and says, wait a minute, let me figure out what's going on. So there can be a literal laying on of hands, but also just what we call putting eyeballs on. <laughs> so a trained looking and assessment and responding to an acute situation. And I really love that. And as I just said, it can be an acute physiological situation. It can also be an acute emotional situation. You, you walk into a room and a patient is crying or they're incredibly angry or they're very, very frustrated. All these things, you're always confronting that reality of what's going on with the patient and trying to do your best with it. And Florence Nightingale said nursing is an art. And I do feel like that is the art part of nursing. How do you take what's going on with that patient and you try to turn it into something better, whether that means you sit with them and hold their hand, you call a physician because you need an order for pain medication, you have someone else come and look at the patient with you. It's the immediacy of it. I, I really love that. And also just getting to know all these different people much better and in a more intimate way than I probably would if I were a doctor, because you're in the hospital, you're spending 12 hours a day with people. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. Okay, so you're talking to a doctor at the moment, and I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Art is not a word that's used a lot when it comes to medicine. You said that, you know, the first thing that they taught you in nursing school was chemistry. You weren't taught the humanities. You weren't taught what do you do? How do you make somebody feel comfortable when they are frightened, when they are in pain, whatever? That's something you must have learned as your degree progressed and you, you, you became more or was it was it something that you learned at nursing school or was it something that it was innate in you because you'd done the humanities you know i think you do learn some of that in nursing school you, you hear a lot of talk about empathy that's definitely there but i also think it was something that i brought with me from the humanities and, and i certainly think that the work that doctors do can be art and science the same as nursing, the same as therapists. You know, I'm married to an astrophysicist. That's very heavy science, but there is an art element as well. 
So just coming in with that kind of mindset, I think, is a is a different way of thinking about the job, but also thinking about patience, because it's not just what's going on with you physiologically, but what's going on with the whole of you. And to me, that's where the art comes in. And we are taught that in nursing school. But as I have gotten older and progressed more in healthcare, I do believe there's a knowledge and understanding of people that I got from studying the humanities that I brought to work with me that I believe if you only do sciences and you do them in a very hardcore, intense way, you're not going to get that same understanding of people. So for example, you know, literature is full of books that are told in first persons. You don't always know if you can trust that first person, right? Like you're only getting the story from them. And talking about that and how people tell stories and why they tell the stories they tell or reading books where you see the same thing from different points of view really helped me even as a very new nurse with listening to people and figuring out, wait, there's a question beneath this question (laughs) or what is it they're not telling me and made me a very good listener in the sense that I was trying to always be open to what they were saying. And, and this was really brought home to me. I, I worked outpatient oncology after I worked inpatient. And also we, we occasionally prepped patients for procedures on our floor. And we had a patient, and, you know, I'd asked him all the questions we're supposed to ask and he'd answered all of them. And, and then finally we're getting ready to send him down. And he started telling me this story about how he is physically unable to hyperextend his neck. And so he can't be intubated or it's really hard to intubate him. He said, oh, my sister's the same. And he's just kind of telling me this. And I thought, oh, my God, this is so important. And I I really credit that training in English for that listening of you you never know when the really important bit of information is going to come out. And that had nothing to do with what he was there for, but it certainly mattered because he was going to be under conscious. He wasn't going to be intubated, but he was going to be under conscious sedation. Everything went wrong. It was going to be a problem. And that wasn't noted anywhere in his chart, which is a whole nother question that the more electronic records systems have gotten like Excel spreadsheets, the less and less human we are able to put in them. And so there's no room to put in things like that. Or even if you do, nobody knows how to find it. Just all this unique information about each person vanishes in the cloud because it's not accommodated. And it's a it's a very bizarre way of thinking about healthcare that it's just about data. When if we know one thing, it should be that everybody is different from every other one. There's a lot there to unpack, and I share your concern about somebody who says they can't hyperextend their neck. There's a condition called atlantoaxial dislocation where mm. you can actually be paralyzed, and there are medical conditions that predispose you to that. So you're right. That was a good call. I want to go back to the whole idea of 
caring for people in distress. And I want to think about what the current nursing student will face when she walks or he walks onto a ward. You will see a bed that's very sterile. You will see all these beeping instruments. You'll know that the patient has to be out of the bed at a certain time for the doctor's rounds. You will know that they have to be prepared at this particular time for those investigations. You'll know that they have the lights go out at a particular time. You'll know that the rooms are set up often with very little in the way of privacy and that it's all very regimented. And here, on the other hand, is a very sick, frightened person. Midwifery got this right because you can labor now in a room that looks like your own bedroom and you can labor in situations that look very nice. But that's not what health care does to people. It puts us like a car on a ramp ready to be worked on in a very sterile environment. And yet you're describing the caring that is very alien in that environment. How did you square that during your training? Wow, what a great and hard question. I, I remember as a new nursing student going into a room and a patient had two chest tubes and I, and I, had, to, I had to back out of the room. I felt like I can't handle this. Part of me was that this is gross. <laughs> I don't want to be in here. So then I made an accommodation with, okay, this is the way we care about people. These are the tools we use. So I was able to integrate all that equipment and material into my sense of caring. And if there are new nurses or doctors listening to this, you will get there. It takes time, but, but you will get there. And so for me, I developed a comfort level that everyone does, right? But what matters is we forget then that patients coming in don't have that same comfort level. And, and for me, it can come right down to the level of needles, right? Like I'm very comfortable with needles. You know, some people faint when they see a needle. And I don't think about that because it's just so normal to me and such a normal part of the job. And I say, well, this sometimes I have to give someone a shot and that's how I care for them. But to them, it may be get that needle away from me. It is really scary. And this idea of a, a car on a ramp comes up in my new book, Healing, when I went for a stereotactic biopsy, which if, if people don't know, you, you lie on a table that has a hole in it. You stick the breast that has cancer in it through the hole. Like just describing it is absurd. And then you get raised up in the air like a car in a garage. And when I was doing that, they tell you to don't move. Okay, actually move one eighth of an inch this way or that way. Now don't move. No one told me anything that was going on. They're like zapping me to try and get out the tissue sample that they can't get. And by tissue sample, I mean, you know, piece of the tumor in my body, out of my body. And I was trying to be what I thought of as the easy patient, right? Because those are the people who don't get in the way, the way they let the work proceed normally. When it was all over, I realized, my God, I hate this. I, I do not want to expect that of myself or of anyone else. No one should feel like a car in a garage. 
ever. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. I couldn't agree more to the extent that I'm reminded that sometimes patients are put in a, a four-bedded ward. Often that happens in some hospitals around the world. And the curtains pull down when you need to poop. Now, how can you do that? And these patients are intubated or, or they're, they're in some way, they're tethered to that particular bed. And that's almost what we are expecting. Then we wonder why they all need to have laxatives because they, they can't perform. I mean, it's that gross. and It's that let's get down to brass tacks here. The problem for many of us in healthcare, doctors and nurses, is that we become blind to the environment that we are, where patients are put into. We don't see it because, as you say, we become acclimatized to sticking needles in people and scalpels and putting them on machines, and it's normal to us. But as you say, to a patient who may be there for the first time, it is a horrible experience, which is really one of the reasons I was so keen to talk to you because you describe a very different experience when you had radiation therapy and how all of that was pivoted and changed so that you didn't feel like the car on the ramp. Yes. And as you and I talked about before you were recording, a lot of people actually have a bad experience in radiation oncology and feel very subordinated to the sort of power of the machines. But for me, it really was an oasis. And I think what made the difference is they were so intentional about being clear with patients and and being caring. So the doctor was very frank, very straightforward, said, here's what's really important. We, it's really bad if you miss a day. Here's how we're going to take care of your skin. Then a nurse came in to talk to me about that. And this struck me so much that they tended to give aloe vera gel away to patients and patients put on their skin to care for their skin. Well, I have an an allergy to aloe vera, which is weird, but it's true. (laughs) And um, So she said, oh, well, uh, you can get Aquaphor. And she just seemed brokenhearted at not being able to give me some Aquaphor, which is cheap enough and you can buy it at the drugstore, right? It's not some sort of luxury, you know, lotion that that one has to order especially. But that was just a level of humaneness that I had not encountered anywhere else. And then they had us watch a video of the machines, which, as I say in the book, is now mixed up in my mind with the video you watch before the plane takes off. So I'm sort of like, it's like radiation machines and then stewardesses with bright flags tied around their necks. And the point wasn't the video and what I got out of it, but the fact that they showed me the video and, and then unfailingly the techs who sometimes worked 12 hour days and longer, young people, people in their twenties, they were wonderful. And one of them said to me, you know, Teresa, we know you don't want to be here. So we have to be extra kind. And that must have come from their leadership, right? And it felt like somebody had decided 
What really matters here is that our patients feel cared for. And I, I really, really, really did. It, it just made such a difference. And it, it wasn't because they had a patient compassion officer or this is our new patient empathy experience or whatever. It was old fashioned being kind, explaining things. That's it, really. I, I can't say much more than that. And I think we can all do that. It, it gets harder and harder, of course, especially in the U.S., because there's so much pressure now for healthcare to just make money, make money, make money. There are venture capital companies, if people in Australia don't know this, buying American healthcare systems and just stripping them down to maximize their profit, which is disgusting and I feel like should be illegal, but it's not. So in that kind of environment, it's harder and harder and harder to be nice, to care, because you have so little time to do what you need to do. But I still feel like leadership could put an emphasis on that. And one of the interviews I did for Healing when it came out was with a small hospital system, and I think in Mississippi, where they said all the time their CEO is talking about empathy. And they asked me, I said, well, what, what was it like when you met with your oncology team? And I said, oh, I never, I never met with my team. I never had a team. Like there was no team. And just something like that, like here's your team and you're going to meet with them and they're going to talk to you about what the expectation is. Small things like that make a huge difference and I would really love to see research done on those kinds of interventions because I think down the road, in fact, there is some evidence already that shows this, but that it would save money, there would be a reduction in phone calls and questions in um, care not being followed through on, all those things, because the less people understand, the more they feel like they're being kind of pushed around by the system, the less likely they are to just go along with what they're told to fall in because they think, why, why should I do that? I don't feel like these people are looking out for me. A lot there, again, and, you know, the word research and more focus groups, and I can see academic institutions delighted that you've said that because they'll say, oh, <laughs> here's a chance for some more grants. And I say to that baloney, I say, no, it should be down to your choices I often say that the only thing I get to choose where I work is the color of my tie. Everything else, the institution, the infrastructure, the policies, the staffing, everything is chosen by somebody else. The one thing that I get to choose and that you've chosen that makes a difference to the patients is our attitude. Uh. It's what we bring of ourselves in that environment. Somebody saying to you, I'm really sorry, you can't have that cream. And you can see in their eyes that they're hurt that you, you, they can't provide it for you. But that made you feel seen and heard and, and valued, regardless of whether they were going to make money out of you or not. You were valued for mm -hmm. what you were adding to their day on that particular occasion. I want to go back again to 
to your days in nursing, your start in nursing. And mm. can can you say that everyone that you trained with had the same attitude? That's number one. And number two, are we getting the right people into either profession, whether that's uh, doctoring or nursing? I think the people I trained with all wanted to do well. I think they cared a lot about patients. There were also a number of people I trained with who had already planned to work for a few years and then to become a nurse anesthetist. And that, from what I've heard, is a problem at the sort of higher level nursing school. So it's it's all about, well, when are you going to become a nurse practitioner? When are you going to become a nurse anesthetist? And there's not enough value given to being a bedside nurse. And that's what we need, bedside nurses. And that, you know, again, the two in the afternoon or the two in the morning, that's who's going to save the patient. So that really bothers me. And, and actually, this makes me think that would be a great thing to try to write about because it's such a shame that even in nursing schools, which is a paradox, right? The bedside nurse is not valued the way he or she should be. And, you know, so many people have asked me, well, when are you going to get a doctorate in nursing? It's like, first of all, I already have a doctorate. I'm not getting another one. <laughs> but I don't need a doctorate. And I don't want a doctorate in nursing. I want to be a bedside nurse. That's the job I want to do. And it's a great job. So I think that's a problem. I, I think for both medical students and nursing students, but probably especially medical students in the U.S., there's so much emphasis put now on who's good at science, who's good at taking in a whole bunch of information and shuffling around and regurgitating it and making sense of it. And I, I, I do not deny that that is critically important to being a good physician but my sense is we're not looking enough at people's human characteristics. And I, I think that's also happening somewhat in nursing. There's a lot of people who want to be nurses in the U.S., but we don't have enough spots for them. And so, of course, schools the way we do in the U.S. are prioritizing well, high SAT scores and high GPAs. And, and that's all very important and wonderful. But are we excluding people whose humanity is also drawing them to that field. I, I don't think I can draw a direct conclusion about that, although I have read a few things at least about medical students. Again, no insult to the medical students out there, but to the way that medical students are selected, that it's really about, can you work hard? Do you have the grades? You know, How did you do in your MCAT? Did you do all the volunteering you were supposed to do? Are you really good at hitting your marks and moving on and keeping up this tremendous outflow of labor <laughs> rather than, yeah, can you, maybe you don't do that quite as much, but there's this way that you're incredibly kind or you've showed a commitment to a certain kind of volunteer work that's about helping the disadvantaged or understanding people better or just putting in time into your community because you think that's important. You know, there's so many different values 
embedded in the traits we select for. The interesting thing about it is that despite all of this emphasis on the academic side of it, we are having more clinicians burning out now than ever before in history. That's number one. Number two, complaints against physicians continue to rise. For example, in the UK, the GMC says it is almost 100% certain that there will be a complaint about you as a doctor at some point in the course of your career, at least one complaint to the GMC. So complaints are rising, burnout is rising. And the other thing that often people don't remember is that within 10 years, if not sooner, everything that you've learned at medical school will be obsolete. Things like immunotherapy, which now is almost bread and butter for many conditions, hadn't even been dreamt of when I trained as a medical student in the 1980s, and I went to a very good school. So I think the problem is, perhaps, that we, whoever we are, are selecting our doctors based on traits that simply are not fit for purpose. Because as you said, in the end, it's about the doctor who can create the partnership and who can appear at the bedside when the nurse has has, says that somebody is in distress and is able to help relieve that condition in the most appropriate way. The problem is, how do we now recognize those young people who have the potential to deliver the kind of care that you've described in your experience of radiation oncology? What you're saying makes me think that we really need to also be selecting for flexibility because there's this tension, as you know, in medical training that you want people who come in and are smart, but also they're always being trained by their seniors who are trained by their seniors. So the way the training is done is actually emphasizing newness, but in the whole context of let's keep doing the things the way we've been doing them. And so adaptability is not necessarily rewarded. Flexibility, you know, they say it takes, what, 10 years for new medical information to trickle its way to the bedside. I mean, it's not that long. People should not think it's that way for, like, you know, it's for immunotherapy or a new cancer treatment. It's not like that. But a lot of things it is. And nursing is the same. I mean, nursing in a lot of ways is a very hidebound profession has this tradition of, you know, you're going to do what I say. I'm, I'm the one in charge. I'm a, a doctor friend of mine, he said, oh my God, I, I can't believe when I hear some of these nursing instructors, how they talk to their students. And I say, yeah. Um, so there has to be a whole sea change that's about adapting and being flexible rather than what's really important here is we maintain the status quo because what you're saying is true. I haven't done oncology for five or six years now. If I went back, it's going to be completely different. I mean, I, I feel like I would be so far behind and I used to, you know, give patients chemo all the time and I'd really have to relearn that job. It hasn't even been a decade and then you've got to have people who are nimble on their feet, 
who are quick at reacting, who want to learn things. That's the other thing. You want to inculcate the value of learning. And in the U.S., we do have continuing education required for nurses, but it's really, it's, it seems like it became just sort of a money-making scam, much more than let's really educate nurses about things that are important. And so, again, it's that lack of responsiveness to the system and the people in the system. So now let me think about how do you inculcate that so that people are acting the way they did in radiation oncology. And that comes down to leadership. Are the people in the leadership saying we have to adapt to this? This is the best thing for patients. Um, we're going to try and do this differently. And then work with people who have a really hard time doing that. That's not easy, but it's not you know, you, you've got a lot of smart people to work with, right? It can be done, but it does take effort. But, you know, there's so much effort now that goes into controlling everyone and do this like this and do that like that. If you could put that effort into, hey, let's look out for each other. Let's look out for patients and you know, see what happens. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. It could be great. I think, you know, reflecting as somebody who is a medical educator and is involved in that business, I often hear some tutors saying to me that the only way to get your class to pay full attention is to say, this is going to be on the exam. So if you say to them, this is going to be on the exam, everyone puts their computer aside, gets a pen and paper out, and starts scribbling quickly so that they are not missing out on the answer to the question that's going to be on the exam. What is not sexy is to say to somebody, now if you're in a four-bedded unit and somebody needs to poop and there isn't privacy, this is how you're going to handle the situation so that that person feels able to do what they have to do. Mm. Or, you know, here's a course on how you can be present when you've had a row at home, you've had a fight with your partner, and they're wanting to phone you in the middle of a shift, and you're with the mm -hmm. patient. This is what that looks like, and this is how you handle that. That's not something that is currently on any curriculum of any medical school that I know of, or any nursing school, for that matter. These are not things that we're focusing on. And yet that's the thing that you and I both agree makes all the difference when it comes to caring for people. And also dealing with death. There's a new book out called Grief on the Front Lines by a journalist named Rachel Jones. And she is talking about this epidemic of burnout, nurses, doctors, and other healthcare workers. But there's no teaching about death and grief. And we had one lecture that I remember on when patients die. And, and really the content of it was, how do you put them in a body bag? Like there was nothing about 
the emotions involved. And I did a podcast with some pretty new nurses for healing. And one of them said, it's, you know, he said, I'm in my early twenties. I'm supposed to go and talk to these family members about this person you love is dead. He said, I don't know how to do that. No one taught me how to do that. I don't feel emotionally able to do that. And that stuff is hard. I don't know if in Australia, I mean, you guys handled COVID better than we did, as did most of the world. But (laughs) a lot of what nurses and, and doctors heard was when they said it's really hard working in these units, it's really hard working with COVID was, well, this is what you signed on for, which is really cruel but also not true. I mean, nobody goes into healthcare because they want to have five patients die every day. And I mean, that's not normal. Like that's not expected by anyone to worry that you could catch an illness that's going to kill you. And to me, that's all of a piece with this, well, now I'm supposed to go tell someone that their daughter is dead? I don't know how to do that. Well, that's what you signed on for. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, or or maybe it is, but I need some help. And the whole emotional side of being a clinician, we do not attend to in either nursing or medical school. It's so interesting. I, I was part of a workshop once sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the big healthcare foundation here in the U.S., and patients and medical providers. And some of us medical providers were talking about our values. And one of the values that went up on this board was recover the joy in what I'm doing. And one of the patients there said she had no idea that clinicians felt that way. It was so sad and so telling. Patients had no idea that we go to work because we care, we want to feel useful, we want to feel like we're helping people. They just saw us as the enemy. And that was seven or eight years ago. I mean, it's probably only gotten worse. And it sounds like from what you're saying, it has gotten worse. I feel that we have almost a reductionist approach to our patients now. So I was just scribbling as you were talking. We're very good at treating, and there are sort of nice algorithms for treating depression, hypoxia, hypertension, hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia. We're very good. If you ask any of our medical students those, they will rattle these out for you. But if you say to them, how are you going to deal with anger, sadness, bereavement, fear, loss, how are you going to deal with that? Because that's far more likely than hypoxia on your shift this afternoon. You're going to see anger more more likely than you are going to see a hypoxic patient. How are you going to deal with that? And how are you going to approach that? They don't know. So is it not only are we not selecting necessarily or training necessarily the in the right way, but are we also not presenting the job in the right way? Are we presenting people with a false idea about what really matters in medicine? Good food for thought. And I, I read somewhere recently a doctor saying, you know, 40 years ago, 
there were certain things we had no treatments. And so we listened and we talked to people because that was all we could do. But now we have great treatments. So it was sort of this idea of, I don't want to waste my time talking to people about their feelings about having liver cancer when I could talk to them about their treatment. And that was so revealing to me because whether you're going to die or you're going to have to go through a, an arduous treatment process, I mean, of course, that's a huge difference. But in both situations, you need the people taking care of you to talk to you and, and see you as a human being. You don't stop having a human need for compassion and understanding just because you're not going to die. And that, that's setting the bar. It's such a weird place. And, and I wondered sometimes if that was the situation with me with my breast cancer, to them, they were like, oh, this is small, it's slow growing, it's tubular, you know, you're golden for cancer, you know, <laughs> like nobody said that. But I sort of wondered if they felt like this is nothing, you know. Now, if they'd said to me, like, honey, we got this, you're going to be fine, like that would have been great, but nobody said that. You know, but for me, it's not nothing, it's cancer. It's huge. And that it was so hard for anyone to say, except for in radiation oncology, you know, we've got this. Here's what we're looking at for your treatment. We're going to be able to take care of you. Yeah, th this idea of, you know, that's not something I need to talk about, right? Because I can throw you chemo or I can take out the cancerous part of your liver or I can remove your brain tumor, whatever. No, you still need to talk about it. The emotion that we are experiencing as patients is often the thing that is front and center. It's not the other things. As you say, there are other treatments available. But I also question that whole idea because in the course of my career, the number of treatment for things that uh, we had very few options for has increased dramatically. If you think of depression, for example, there are more antidepressants now available than anything else. But yet we don't manage that condition particularly well because the majority of people are not clinically depressed. They are sad, they're upset, there are other things are going on that doesn't require a pharmacological approach. And yet the pharmacological approach, that which has influenced training, that which has influenced clinical practice, is there for the reason that you hinted at, which is that healthcare has become a business. And we are becoming blind to the fact that we are being influenced constantly by those who produce those things which make money for them. Yeah, I have a, a very good friend who at one point in her life started having some like pretty severe anxiety attacks always when she was driving and sometimes had to stop and her husband come get her and just, you know, really uh, serious stuff. And, and the clinicians she saw all just wanted to put her on medication. She went to a therapist. The therapist wanted to put her on medication. And, you know, it wasn't that she was opposed to that, but she felt like this is not helping me understand. And she found her own way to work it out without being on medication. And, you know, psychotropic medications have saved lives all over the world, right? This is not a dig at those medications. But as you're saying, 
if we feel like, well, we don't need to manage this. We don't need to talk about it. We don't need to help this person understand. We just need to medicate them. That's not a great approach. And I think people can see that, right, with something like anxiety. You know, why are you suddenly afraid of driving? That's unusual. <laughs> Let's try and understand that better. But, you know, you have cancer. It's sort of, why are you so afraid of that? It's very treatable. We've got this. If I say it like that, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because it's cancer. Everybody's scared of cancer. And I am too, you know, I'm just like everyone else in that regard. And yet the idea that I might want to talk about that, even for just a few minutes, <laughs> was not accommodated. I mean, my, my primary care provider was, was helpful. But even then he said, he said, you know, you want to get a medical oncologist. You want someone who's really going to kind of oversee everything. And the way my health plan works, that that's, that's, no, I was the one overseeing everything, which is why I called it DIY, do-it-yourself cancer care, because even his sense of how the treatment worked was outdated with the reimbursement models. A medical oncologist is going to oversee everything. Nobody's paying for that. <laughs> I remember way back in my career when I first started out in family medicine, somebody saying to me, why do why doing family medicine? Don't you want to do something for the patient? In other words, what I was offering <laughs> to the patient wasn't a, a, a fix-it that I could prescribe uh, or that I could use my scalpel on, etc. I'm glad I didn't pay any attention to that because we can do much more without actually doing those things that seem to have become so fashionable. I owe my career to a nurse. Uh, Teresa Brown, mm. uh, thank you so much for choosing to become a nurse. And nursing is leading the way. The nurse who changed my career was called Eileen Dorley, and I wrote about her in The Art of Doctoring, and I was particularly delighted that we were able to connect. Thank you. You're welcome. And yeah, I just want to say that in my experience, family medicine doctors often do the most for patients of anybody and bedside nurses too. So perhaps that's a good note to end on in our, our shared connection of wanting to make a difference. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.